Welcome to the Science Slot Machine. Brought to you by students of the Science, Technology, and Society Master's Program at the University of Vienna. In this podcast, we explore topics from the very notable to the very niche. We always keep an eye on how science, technology, and society relate to one another in various aspects. We discuss hot topics, but also suggestions by you. Check us out on social media. And be sure to send us your topic suggestions to science.machine at gmail.com. Hey guys, and welcome back to the Science Slot Machine. We're back here, and with us is a new member to our team, Nora. Hi, Nora. How are you doing? Hi, everyone. Uh, I'm good. <laughs> How are you? Okay. Uh, also good. <laughs> thanks. Thanks. Yeah, we really appreciate you joining the team. And uh, what can you can you maybe tell us a little bit about yourself? What you're doing? What you like? What you what your hobbies are? <laughs> um, yeah, I'm a student, uh, as you guys, uh, but I started, I mean, I'm in the same master's program as you are and, but I'm, I started one year later. So I just finished my first semester in Vienna, uh, and a, a friend told me of your podcast. So I thought, um, I just give it a try and ask whether I could join and luckily you're I could so here I am yes and I think one very important question is that every other member of the podcast uh, has been have been asked is what is your experience with gambling after all science slot machine kind of has this annotation that uh, a lot of people might relate to casinos but I think we all talked about our gambling experiences or non-existent experiences so what are yours well i mean not really uh any gambling experiences i had one lecture on game theory <laughs> during my bachelor studies uh i've never been to a casino i've never tried anything like that but um i'm from from bavaria so there are these beer festivals are really big and uh, when i was little i always had these little little like lottery things and uh, I was really eager to to do this, <laughs> so maybe yeah. that counts. I also had them when I was little. <laughs> as I'm, as the listeners maybe know, I'm also from Bavaria. Is that what got you hooked on gambling? Then yeah, I love I love gambling. <laughs> yeah, did you say? I'm sorry, Nora. Did you say that you took gambling theory, or did I hear you wrong? Yeah, you heard me. Yeah. It okay, was wrong. <laughs> I'm glad. It was well, game. No, no, it was game, game theory. theory. Yeah. Okay, okay. I do know what that is. Well, I have another question about gambling and taking some risk here. I'm going to ask you and put you on the hot spot. This is about gambling. Have you ever gambled with your luck academically? Are you a repeated offender of copy pasting? Do you copy paste your work? Do you know where it comes from? I, I think I should say yes. <laughs> I know where it comes <laughs> Good from. Answer. I mean, Good like answer. when I when I when I draft my essays, I copy paste a lot actually from sources. But I try to to then paraphrase everything in my own words and also indicate where it comes from. But yeah, you never know whether something slips through or not. But I hope not. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yes, it's true. Actually, I have to admit I have also, I wouldn't say plagiarized, but subconsciously or not on purpose, copy-pasted some stuff. I always, uh, you know, refer to the source, but it's a big gamble in academia to, to do this. So whoever is listening, don't always uh, write down your sources and please guys keep very careful list of whatever sources you're using. Yeah, that's about right. Everyone should really take care of that. And yeah, we have heard this uh, in the interview with Uli Feld, um, some inspiring uh, thoughts and also how STS deals with this. And we wanted to continue this discussion and come back here and discuss a little further what scientific misconduct actually means, uh, how we can look at it and how we can look at it from an STS perspective also. So is there any hot take on the topic? So we asked uh, ourselves, have we ever done it uh, on purpose or without purpose? I have to admit, uh, I probably did it sometimes with essays, I think. I really don't know. It could happen because sometimes you just forget to cite something or, yeah, you never know. I also think, I mean, when, I, when I'm writing something, I don't think I've ever plagiarized word for word or taken things. I'm not really much of a copy paster. Um, I'm really pretty conscious about this, about not doing that. But, but I, you know, I've sometimes when we're sitting in classes and we listen to ideas and things, after a while, you forget where these things come from. And you might write it into the paper and, and put it into your own words. But if you're not citing the person whose idea it, it originally was, because you forgot, it's still, um, in the real sense of the word plagiarism and you might not even know it and i think this is something that was really nicely illustrated by uli is that you know we shouldn't look at all these cases as just you know this is a bad apple and 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 they had such bad intent about doing this and really look at it as a, as a case-by-case -case basis like not everybody is out to steal from other people i think most of these things like costa said is is, is kind of just done by accident uh, most of these things are not um uh, horribly intended things they they just happen um because we're absorbing so many ideas and and, and new theories and And you just might forget where, where it comes from. That's very true. Also in STS, we very often discuss uh, the concept of thought collectives. So when there are a few people kind of um, being part of one thought collective, constantly exchanging ideas, as you mentioned, in class, it really is hard to track who actually had the idea. And this kind of reminds me of another type of Uh, plagiarism or more specifically scientific misconduct that very often appears in co-authoring and co-authorships is that when there are a lot of people working on, on a project or on a particular paper or publication, there is always this discussion first whose name is written first and who takes the main credit for it. And could it be that there are people who contributed somehow that are not listed as contributors? So this I see also kind of as form of plagiarism and, you know, scientific misconduct, although it's not directly copy-pasting. Yeah, because there is not only copy-pasting, there's other types of scientific misconduct. And that is also what Uli pointed us to somehow. She said, yeah, plagiarism is always what the media takes on usually. 
And we should also be careful about other aspects of scientific misconduct, like false data fabrication, or like you said, uh, co-authorship issues. There might also be some misconduct. You know, talking about scientific misconduct, actually, I found a very interesting term that I found quite interesting. I've heard it before, but it never really caught my attention, and it's called helicopter research. Do you guys know what that is? No, tell us more. I'm going to tell you right now. It's kind of this unethical thing that um, researchers from wealthier countries fly to a developing country, for example, collect the information, travel back to their country, analyze the data, the samples, publish the results, and they do not in any way involve the local research, which kind of makes this super huge gap and disbalance between um, academia in different countries. And uh, in our conversation earlier, you mentioned Wikipedia, which is another very controversial tool when it comes to information and content and science and knowledge, if you want, because Wikipedia is a place where most of the people plagiarize from. Isn't that so? And even though in Wikipedia, all the resources and sources are mentioned, rarely people actually click on them. They just copy, paste, and directly quote Wikipedia as the source, which is also kind of scientific misconduct, isn't it? Yeah, but I yes, feel it like is. with with, <laughs> with Wikipedia, I mean, it's it's creative commons, right? And I feel like you wouldn't really use it like I wouldn't really use Wikipedia to do my research. I would use it as a starting point and then um, go on. And then, I don't know, in my essay, in my academic essay, I guess I would never cite Wikipedia. I hope you don't. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Unless that's the object of your research in, in, in itself. But yeah, I agree. I, I also use it as a starting point a lot of the time. For sure, for sure. Every. Oh, not every time, but really often, yeah. Yeah, I mean, but the thing is, there's nothing, I think there's a, this is maybe going a little off topic, I promise we'll bring us back, but what is the difference between using Wikipedia as a starting point and say an encyclopedia? So it's just a, it's just a practice that is, that is our generation that is, that is, that we have now. So we have Wikipedia at our disposal, but other scholars 30, 40 years ago, 20 years ago, were using encyclopedias as a starting point. And in encyclopedias, it does it the same way as Wikipedia, where a lot of the sources will be pointed out so you can get to farther reading. So I do think we should destigmatize Wikipedia and what it, what it means um, in academic work a little bit. Yeah, I think Wikipedia nicely shows how, how easy, like it, it just gets so much easier in the digital age to to copy and paste like even this term comes from the internet or the internet age the digital age so yeah i guess also it just became a lot easier to plagiarize plagiarize plagiarize, plagiarize. <laughs> uh, nowadays than it was 40 years ago where you kind of went to the library had i don't know 20 books that dealt with the topic you want to write your essay about or want to do your research about. But you can just, now you can just enter everything into Google and you have a lot of sources you could actually plagiarize from. 
Yeah, the, the term is a little bit difficult. But you're really, you're right, Nora. Uh, that is also what Uli mentioned, that, not, that of course, scientific uh, practice has changed over time. And with the internet, with different technologies, also scientific practice changed. And nowadays, um, the, there is possible copy-paste uh, actions, which were not, not really before. And so you're pointing... At, an, at a very very specific um, thing here, the technologies involved in scientific practice, which are really important. Yeah, you know, this reminds me of also of something that Uli mentioned in her interview. Guys, you're going to listen to it as well because it's extremely enriching. But uh, what she said is that people really love having technical solutions of social problems. And this is what Turnitin and other softwares that are about plagiarism, um, they're kind of technical solutions to social problems. And this makes me think, you know, in this era where everything could be tracked, it's like the blockchain of uh, plagiarizing. You can track where everything came from. Also, language barrier is not an issue anymore. When it gets harder and harder to steal some kind of intellectual property or plagiarize, would do you think that this is going to increase somehow the quality of academia and scientific research when people plagiarize less because it's harder? So, uh, so let me get this uh, right. You're asking if these technological solutions actually will end up helping. Is that what you're asking? Yes. Yeah, I think um, what what Uli pointed at is is the important thing here is that there's different fields. It might help them differently. So like we in the social sciences, sure, like this might help with plagiarism a little bit, but there's always workarounds. And um, but the real thing we should be looking at here isn't, you know, plagiarism is just such a small issue of, of, of scientific misconduct. I think that is one of those examples when she made the division between good, bad, and ugly. That's a bad thing, right? We can all agree that plagiarism is bad. Um, not, not doing plagiarism, not plagiarizing is good, you know? I mean, but that's just the dichotomy that we create, good and bad, and it's a very simple thing. The real scientific misconduct or the real... Uh, thing that STS scholars and STS researchers should be focused on is the ugly things, the things that we don't know that much about. So how how these results are made, um, how they can be repeated, uh, how open are the um, procedures for the experiments, can they be replicated easily, um, what was the motivation behind the research in the beginning and how honest are you being about the results and how honest are you being about the uh, further directions for research? Are you ending your research with a, with a claim that simply cannot be backed up and is just a hope or are you ending it with something that was actually indicated with the outcome of your research? I think that's what STS people, <laughs> us, should be interested in. I think this plagiarism, like like Huss pointed out, and is just that's what the media launches onto because it's really good. Dichotomies are awesome in the media. Good, bad, good, bad. It's so easy. Um, but to go back to your question, to answer it, since I think I've sidetracked it, is yes, I do think they can help with social science research. I think they're a great tool. Um, the thing is, I wish they were treated as more of a tool, to be honest, that that we did turn it in, even its title, it has, it implies this, haha, gotcha 
type of thing. So the students really don't use it as much as the teachers use it to catch plagiarism rather than students using it to check their own. You said turn it in. Can you maybe quickly explain to yes. our listeners what that is actually? Yeah, absolutely, Costa. So turn it in is it's really simple. Um, it can be integrated or used on its own in, in a website or, or when you turn in an assignment for school. And I think even if I can remember right, even in the US in my high school, I used it for some essays. Um, and so you turn it in <laughs> as the name <laughs> <laughs> as the name implies. And it basically runs through plagiarism check that checks against other student papers and that were submitted to the Turnitin platform. And it also checks against all journals, book chapters, anything that's been submitted to like Web of Science and, and, and these types of different databases. So it just texts, it, it just basically checks text against texts to see if there's overlap. And then from there, it provides the um, teacher or the examiner and sometimes it's an option to also let the student know what percentage points they have for their plagiarism value and usually the thing is when you turn it in 10 percent is a is a pretty normal value for a lot of people to get because that's just the overlap you're going to get with certain sayings certain phrases and things like this so this is not a shock to people when you when you have a value of 10%. But when you start getting it 40, 50%, there, there's an obvious case of some type of wrongdoing there. Yes, I think it's very interesting because I'm going to highlight what you said about Turnitin and this kind of software is that they're uh, basically analyzing text. So it's all the written plagiarism. But Costa mentioned earlier, or maybe it was you, altering information, changing small stuff in words that can also change the meaning of particular statement, this kind of uh, falsifying and fabricate, fabricating or modifying data is the main issue and it has nothing to do with, with the software because here we are still uh, judging a software whether it's good or bad on how well it's... Uh, kind of finding uh, plagiarized text, but actually it's in the structure of how science works. Because you have, I talked to Max Vochler, he's another um, professor in our department about the limitations of peer reviewing and interviews. Because, you know, the topic for my master thesis is quite sensitive. So how do I I want it I want to prove people that all the stuff that are written there are truthful and here they are papers that I read that I'm convinced that the people who participated in the so-called interviews did not say that and I asked Max how, Max how can you actually track whether somebody lied and uh, falsely for example transcribed their interviews or something and he said you can't it's all based on trust And then you're like, okay, we rely on the software. And at the end of the day, this trust in the community of scientists and social scientists is obviously not working quite as it should. And peer reviewing, for example, it cannot capture this kind of, of scientific misconducts. It cannot also track plagiarism, though. But what I am curious about, Robbie, is you say that it's not working. Um Why is it not working? Because if it's based on its trust, I think it's always been based on trust with minor outliers. I mean, <laughs> thinking like a historian, it's always been based on trust. Every scientific field has been based on trust in a certain way with just outliers. For example, when you had the experimenters of the 17th and 18th centuries, 
these things were done behind closed doors, these experiments. And the only people that were able to watch were wealthy or sponsored gentlemen, <laughs> to, to use the phrase. And you just had to trust that that is what actually happened with the experiment. It only We only got to an outlier when experiments were performed in public, so that making science public. Um, there's a great book you can read on it by uh, Stephen Shapin, I think. Uh, it's a really good one. But so what what is wrong with it? What's broken with it? Is it is it broken because it's based on trust or is it broken because people aren't trusting each other? Because there is no control over the trust, which kind of is ridiculous, but I don't know. I don't have a solution. For me, it's just uh, we really rely on softwares to solve a problem that is actually something we have to solve in between the people that are in the scientific community. So, yeah. And something else you mentioned uh, about making it public, though, like science and experiments. And shall we ask ourselves the question if, if science and knowledge would be as accessible as they are now if people were not plagiarizing? Depends what you mean. I think, I think we keep coming back and back and back to, to plagiarism. And it's something that I really, I have to agree with Uli that I don't think it's the, the most apt thing or, or important thing to be discussing in this. I, there, the thing is, of course, the software is not going to fix the problem. There's always ways around it. Um, and yeah, I, I think a lot of, a lot of the things that are being brought up right now have to also do with what Uli is talking about is that the more public science is made, the more people might expect from science and they might have certain expectations of what science can do or what science should be like. And science has never been like that. You know, sciences, plural, have never been like that. And we have these expectations. Uh, the more and more things get out, you're completely right, Robbie, that plagiarism does bring science into the news that people might not even care about this thing but when wrongdoing happens and the media is able to bring an obvious case in like into this yeah it does make it more visible and i think the fact that it's focused on so much is very detrimental um in a way not because it's not an issue but because there is no mention of other issues and it just reifies the kind of false beliefs a lot of people have about how science should operate, which is still stuck in this idealized big S science, as Uli talked about, you know, where, of course, it's a great community and everybody trusts each other and they're completely honest researchers. And I think that's just not fair to say. Um, not that there aren't those people, but that... Um, it's it's a bit complicated. Why are we? Why do we keep coming at plagiarism? Simply because that's the most popular type of scientific misconduct that everybody is familiar with, lay people and scientists. So maybe that's why, because you see it everywhere, not only in science. We plagiarize on a daily basis, consciously or subconsciously, anyways. So that's why. I think it keeps coming because it's a issue that is not rooted only in science, but in general in society. And just because we use different term in it, like referring or inspiration, it doesn't change the fact that it is plagiarism. Yeah, we're so focused on plagiarism or misconduct, but actually what would make more sense is kind of to look at, yeah, how can we or what are good practices and how can we improve scientific practices or kind of create an environment 
in which good practices are um, are supported in a way or are encouraged. I feel like, yeah, as we said, media is, or in general, everyone is really kind of focused on these bad examples and bad cases. But um, what I think also Uli shows really nicely is that what would make more sense is to focus on what actually works well or on the good practices and also kind of focus on creating an environment in which good scientific good scientific practice is encouraged in a way and i think that's also what makes Oli's research so fascinating in a way that she kind of really she doesn't seek to kind of uh blame someone or kind of spot what what doesn't work well but she's kind of more focusing on how can we make things better in academia in research and maybe also beyond so yeah yeah and i think the 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 term we're searching here is re responsible research and innovation there's even a, pl a platform on that is that right Yeah, it's one of the many, many ongoing projects at the university. I think, I think actually Uli might even be a part of that. <laughs> I think that is about right. Yeah. <laughs> um, do you know more about it, Costa? Why don't you tell our listeners what that means? Is that more than just trust then? I, I, I hope it's more. I hope, it, I really hope it's more. No, it's, it's the questions get raised, like questions about uh, responsibility about responsibility within researchers, but also responsibility um, to society. Like, um, how can we ensure that universities as, a, as research institutions are responsible uh, to other scientists, to society? And how can we ensure that scientific misconduct doesn't happen, but at the same time that really good scientific practice is happening? And I think uh, some important questions are raised there. But yeah, I think in the history of STS, there has also been a lot of discussion uh, around scientific, uh, science as practice and how science actually works. Because like, despite uh, Robert K. Merton's uh, normative structure of science being a nice uh, idea of science, uh, science actually turned out to be working differently like STS scholars have shown in several case studies and um yeah i mean like look we all wish that that those that 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 was exactly how science operated i mean it's not a bad set of ideals and that's but that's exactly where they should be left is that ideals and STS as we know today i mean we're not going to rehash it on this episode that would be a cool episode in the future But um, yeah, a lot, a big chunk of it was spent going into the laboratory. So where, to put it simply, where science was done and really taking time to investigate the practices as they happen in real time and to see, you know, the things that we read, the things that we learn and what and how facts are made, um, how knowledge is made happens. And what they uncovered was a lot of messy procedures a lot of the times not messy is in that everything was badly done and there was a ton of misconduct turn there wasn't there was just the procedure was not like it was envisioned or idealized to the general public or even by robert merton 
Um, it was more of a ad hoc kind of, you know, oh, do this. Oh, that didn't work. So try this. Oh, that didn't work. And yeah, you got to you got to get that thing over there, but just that one because the other one is a little bit different. You have to use this tool, and so there was a whole lot of different activities and different behaviors that were very exact and very place dependent and researcher dependent. That every researcher or laboratory worker did things a little bit differently, and that was all part of what came out in the end results of research. And so it's no coincidence when Uli mentioned in the interview that a lot of the standardization and regulations about academic practice emerge in the 1980s because that is when STS researchers really started to get into those laboratories was in the late 70s. And a lot of the facts that we know and the way things were being done came to light and uh, kind of predated the science wars in the 1990s where science felt under attack and STS scholars also felt under attack. Um, and yeah, so I think there's there, we really need to be aware of this, that these regulations and rules um, that actually end up just reinforcing an idealized version of the way things happen are, are quite new and they really coincide with our field, STS itself. And talking about responsible research and kind of ethical research, can we generalize a rule or something like that for all the scientific fields? Because they differ a lot. So I guess responsible research is different for different realms. Yeah, absolutely not. You're exactly right, Robbie. I think that's a really important point also is that when we have the idealized version of something that it also homogenizes it and makes science into one big thing. And that's that capital S science. It is a noun and it's a thing, a big thing, and everything's alike. And part of the our responsibility <laughs> is to break that up <laughs> and to complicate it, unfortunately. And, and I think that would also be bring uh, a little bit more awareness and appreciation for each discipline and different sub-disciplines and fields and what they do and the different practices that they that they don't just have but that they need to have no i'm sorry guys that once again i'm gonna bring up the concept of plagiarism i know we said it's a taboo topic but i just have so many questions and as we're talking about responsible research and If I compare it to plagiarism, which I can also compare it to a business model because it's not one case or two where people are buying literally their PhDs or they have ghostwriters whatsoever. So can we say that responsible research can also be a business model? Obviously, it's very profitable to plagiarize, but there should be something to be stronger than it and kind of the positive side of uh profitable and responsible research practices. Any ideas? Maybe funding, I guess, that would be one. Now when I think about it. Uh, I heard in a documentation that you can get a PhD for a couple of thousand dollars, uh, euros or dollars. And uh, if, you, if you count the working hours of a PhD that really earns their thesis, uh, their dissertation, then it's way more. So it's actually cheaper to buy just a title than to actually do it and research it on your own. So we need to somehow ensure maybe financially or with uh, other, other, other things uh, that people who do good scientific practice 
actually positively in be are influenced positively by that and people who who really don't do that um shouldn't profit yes that's true and here comes another topic about this obsession with titles i mean everyone has seen it when you go to the university website and you have professor doctor university master bachelor whatsoever they have 10 titles and is this something that actually uh kind of is a symbol of you being a quality researcher so here comes i think we have discussed this in sts the two types of research research with big r like forschung and research with small r which is more like recherche so this differentiation and how what kind of scientific misconduct or responsible research is that you have multiple titles and do people kind of uh have as a goal to be good researchers or to have as many titles as possible. So because they're kind of the two sides of the same coin, aka science and scientific papers and scientific publications and the money that comes with the title or with the projects you're doing. I don't know. I think it's quite interesting part of uh, scientific misconduct, how people use the titles. Yeah, I can definitely say that for Austria, titles are pretty important. <laughs> I would, yeah, I would say so. Yeah, and I'm glad you brought it up uh, because that's what I was gonna say. I was gonna say I, with the plagiarism thing again, I would nitpick that. I don't think like what type of PhDs are bought. I don't know how many PhDs are bought in the field of molecular biology. I don't know how many PhDs are bought for to be a chemist with a PhD in chemistry. I don't know how many PhDs are bought in, yeah, any hard science, to be honest. I think the PhDs are bought to put the title on the wall, right? I mean, no one's ta buying a PhD to publish papers because they wouldn't be a, like i mean maybe they would be able to publish papers but i don't think people are buying phd's for the for for the better ability to publish their own work i think they're buying it just for the title and maybe for the pay yeah i think uh costa mentioned earlier one documentary and it's the one from ORF1 and they had an interview with um representative of one la uh, a lady who was a representative of a university in Belarus and she actually said that most of the students who buy most of the people who buy um, their PhDs are lawyers actually or law students um, so yeah kind of funny right and very controversial and ironic also because as a lawyer you're supposed to and, and then you become right a And then you become a politician or how is the career path? <laughs> oh, I see what you did here. <laughs> no, just kidding, of course, just kidding. Shall we discuss it? The elephant in the room? <laughs> yeah, um, the elephant in the room. <laughs> so basically, yeah, in Austria, it was really big in the news. Uh, it was the case of Christina Aschbacher. And, um, I mean, she was 
the employment minister basically of Austria. And um yeah, she she kind of finished her PhD uh at uh Slovakian University, the university in Bratislava. And she handed in her thesis in spring and then she defended it already or had already defended it in summer last year, 2020. And then there was uh the Plagiatsjäger. I think I forgot his name. Stefan Weber. Yeah. Yeah, Stefan the plagiarism hunter. Yeah. <laughs> hunter. Yeah, and basically, yeah, he um, he had a look at her dissertation and also other publications, and there was a lot of um, bad scientific practice, and she also plagiarized, <laughs> and yeah, it was really big in the in the Austrian news. Also, I think one day after um, after the plagiarism hunter kind of announced his 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 uh findings basically um she already resigned um and then yeah it was it was big in the news basically the entire country made fun of her so um she also even talked about um yeah that basically she and her family uh is treated not really in a fair way and yeah Yeah, you know, in this um, scandal, let's say, I was more interested in the fact that there is a term plagiarism researcher than the fact that somebody plagiarized their <laughs> entire thesis. And I was just thinking, what tools do plagiarism researchers actually use? I mean, they should be extremely advanced. And it also reflected very nicely on the super long-term and long-lasting consequences of plagiarism because they're not only for the politician but also for the supervisor, for the university as an institution and all the students who are going to get degrees from there. Um, Harry, actually, I think you know a bit more about the practices and tools that uh, research plagiarism hunters use to track their victims can you tell us a bit more about it well i can only say what i do know about the plagiarism hunter himself have you ever looked at his website not really it's an interesting place i have to tell you there's lots of stuff going on you can actually it's free you can actually get a free estimate about how much it would cost to investigate somebody that you might suspect of Whoa. plagiarism so if there's any politicians that you think and you look at their titles and you're like hey they have a phd <laughs> might be worth a free estimate from the plagiarism hunter you can do it free of charge but he is a little bit busy with everything that's going on right now <laughs> but um <laughs> so if you ever had a suspicion you can tip him a line and he he might get to work on it for you but a, a lot of from what i could gather and also from looking through um his book which is in english is the google copy paste syndrome the tools aren't super complicated i mean he starts with what we talked about beforehand is turn it in and this is a very basic search and usually from there that gives a lot of places to go um then he also does some different tactics like running it through all translation softwares to look at different things and make sure it didn't come from somewhere else put it into yeah maybe 30 40 different languages and see if that would run through turn it in differently um he also will look if there's any hidden characters in the text such as like 
quotation marks which have been put in white fonts and uh, so that you don't know that it's not it, it is actually quoted and it doesn't show up in the plagiarism so there's all sorts of little tricks that they that they seem to have you know a, a lot like a, a police a policeman or a, a investigator would 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 learn certain things about how criminals behave so um, it almost pathologizes the plagiarizer in a way to be like, well, these are their behaviors and I will track them this way and that way. And they're made into a criminal through the way that they're investigated, which I think is a really interesting thing in itself. Um, and, you know, I, this is really going, but the most hilarious thing for me in this whole scandal, I have to say, reading the articles in journal, especially in, in English, um, especially in the British newspapers and things where they were also reported, is not only did Stefan Weber say that she committed plagiarism, that parts were lifted from other things, and he also went to investigate her master's uh, degree, which also turned out to be plagiarized. So it does look like we do have a repeat offender here um to criminalize her myself but he also said that her command of german was poor and that the gram yes. and that the grammar was bad and there were obvious mistakes and is that really the job of a plagiarism hunter i mean i think that's going a little bit beyond there and like you said robbie that that also has ramifications not just for her but for her advisors supervisors for the entire university for future students there and it just really it's a lot bigger than this one politician that unfortunately got caught. Um, and I just think this is a really fascinating case. And I see why the media picks up on it. And I see why it sells and everything. Uh, even though I do agree with Uli, I um, would pull us back as an STS researcher. But as Harry, as an interesting <laughs> person that loves drama, this is pretty hilarious. This makes me thinking that actually um, researching someone for plagiarism is a very easy way to eliminate politician that you don't want to be somewhere. That's my personal conspiracy theory, you know. It kind of makes sense. Yeah, and yeah, and uh, I mean, there is so I also feel like the basically all the plagiarism cases I know it's politicians mostly german politicians <laughs> so i mean there was the the Karl theodor zu gutenberg the former german defense minister which was really big then even ursula von der leyen like the eu like president of the eu commission she was also kind of there were rumors basically or accusations but now she can keep her her title and then also right now there's the like the german family minister franziska giffey um, but basically she then said she, she would actually be allowed to keep the, the, the title, but then she said, oh, she, she won't use it anymore because probably she's kind of too afraid that, um, that at some point, again, there will be accusations or somebody will kind of do bad, bad things to her because of that. Yes, but this makes me feel very bad about myself and other fellow, student, fellow students who don't write their thesis in their mother tongue because that's the easiest way to fall into the plagiarism trap. Basically, you cannot express yourself so nicely or you think that, oh, nobody can say it better than this person did. So, yeah. Uh, so here I'm afraid that one day when I become super famous with this podcast, someone is just going to go to my bachelor thesis that I wrote in German and it's full of mistakes and they're going to be you. 
have no rights to make a scientific podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna. I'm not gonna send it to Stefan Weber, the plagiarism hunter. For me, you have nothing to fear. <laughs> I was actually looking for tricks how to plagiarize without getting caught because I wanted to see also what the mindset is of people who are you know, those compulsive plagiarizers. And I found one <laughs> I found one article uh, on The Guardian that was kind of referring to this case with Melania Trump and Michelle Obama when Melania kind of stole her speech in 2016, maybe you remember. And one of the rules was, if you get caught, deny, deny, deny. So it, it got me thinking that we as people who are part of academia somehow, we get this mindset that plagiarizing is bad. So you adapt to it and you use it in your daily life. I've noticed it now. Every time I see something that doesn't have a source, it pisses me off. And other people are not like that. So if you're used to plagiarizing and you find it normal, that's fine. So just deny it and that's it. But for scientists, it kind of becomes this thing that really annoys you if you see that people were doing it the wrong way not only in academia but in everyday life in general so i do think that um responsible research and responsible you know whatever towards the source and the original writer is a mindset yeah maybe then it's also about just kind of changing a little bit the mindset as we said um i mean probably everybody does it at some point to minor degrees or maybe also in more important things. But I feel like also in classes that I was taught, it, it's always like, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it in a way. But it was never kind of talked about that probably everybody does it at some point a little bit. And um, yeah, to kind of maybe not normalize it in a way, but just kind of be more in this SDSE tradition and, and look at how, how the practices actually are and be a bit more open about open or more reflective about that so that it's not always like the evil or not always criminalized. Last words. We've all heard, to sum it up, we've all heard this quote by Pablo Picasso that good artists borrow and great artists steal. So if we have to paraphrase it in STS terms, I would say that great science scientists, they do responsible research and they fairly quote um, their sources. That's beautiful. So. Wait, so they steal? We're supposed to steal? I don't get it. <laughs> <laughs> sorry. <I don't. laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> What I got from that is if I want to be a good researcher, I'll borrow. If I want to no, be no, great, no. I'll steal. Good artists Art borrow and great artists steal. And we're saying that if you want to be a researcher and be a great one, you should do the opposite and actually uh, refer to your sources and do responsible research, right? scientists duh